You're listening to Captivate and Convert, the weekly podcast created to show you how to attract the people you actually want to work with, get paid to do what only you can do, and more importantly, make it happen without sacrificing you in the process. I'm your host, Christy Sigelski, and each week you can expect legit tips, strategies, and advice that'll help you show up as the best version of yourself, captivate your audience, and turn your browsers into buyers. If you're ready to build a wildly successful business without the struggle, you're in the right place. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in today. I have literally been on cloud nine about this episode because I have managed to keep today's guest a secret mostly for months, which is quite an accomplishment because I'm not great with secrets and I have zero game face. (laughs) But I can finally reveal that on the show today, I'm chatting with Kara Allwell. Yes, that Kara Allwell, best-selling author, master life coach, and the creator of The Champagne Diet. Now, you're going to hear a little bit about the story of how we met when you tune in, but even though I sort of knew Kara for more than 10 years, I was super nervous about inviting her on the podcast. But she was so gracious. She said yes right away, and I'm so glad she did because I really wanted to ask her about her latest book, Girl on Fire, and how she's managed to build an empire as a multi-passionate entrepreneur. She really brought it in this interview, and I'm pretty sure we covered some things you've never heard from her before. So let's dive in. Hey, Kara, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to chat with you today because we actually connected kind of funny back on Twitter in like late 2009 or early 2010, something like that, when the Champagne Diet was just a blog, right? You hadn't written a book yet, I don't think. You weren't coaching at the time. I think you might have been working for MTV. And it's just been really exciting to watch your brand just explode and to kind of see all the things that you've accomplished over the years. I think at this point, you've written like what, eight or nine books at this point, and you've created this coaching empire. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really inspiring to see all of the things that have happened for you. And, you know, I know our listeners would love to hear what that journey has been like for you and how you've managed to make so many amazing things happen. Oh, thank you, Christy. Thank you so much for having me on the show and for everyone who's listening. Yes, we met way back in the day. I call that like vintage champagne diet days. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was working full time at MTV and really just looking for something creative to pour myself into. I was in a really technical job and I didn't love it. I love the company, but I just, I had this moment where I was like, is this it? Like, is this all that I'm going to do with my life? Like I just, there's got to be more. And that is when I started the blog, which was actually inspired by a glass of champagne. I was looking for something that I could drink that was not going to be, you know, 700 calories, like a cocktail, like a margarita, all those delicious drinks, right? (laughs) And a friend of mine suggested that I start drinking champagne because it's light. It's like, you know, 90 or 100 calories in a glass. And it's like this really elegant, sexy drink. And I started drinking champagne as part of like my little treat that I would have, you know, when I'd go out or whatever. But I realized Like the first time I ever held a glass of champagne in my hands, like I never had champagne before. Like I was in my 20s, you know, like it wasn't like something that I was used to. It felt so fancy to me and so foreign. 
And the first time I held a glass of champagne in my hands, I was like, oh my gosh, like this feels different. You know, this feels special. And I started just drawing all these comparisons to life, right? And like why we wait to open a bottle of champagne, why we wait to wear our best outfit, why we wait to pursue our dreams. And champagne really became this metaphor for me. And I just started the blog, very tongue in cheek, kind of called it the champagne diet and started writing about my journey and everything that I was going through and, you know, chronicling all the changes that I was making. I was having this whole like transformation. Basically, I broke up with the guy that I was with. It was just not a good relationship for me. Wound up kind of getting promoted at MTV into a better position, although it was never really truly what I wanted to do, but I was trying to just like make the most of my life. And from there, the brand really grew. You know, I became a coach and I started writing my books and just really centering the mission in, you know, helping women live the life they want to live because I felt like I had cracked some kind of code and I had figured out how to get myself to a point where I wasn't exactly fearless, but I was willing to try things and I was willing to make a better life for myself. And that's really what it's always been rooted in, celebrating who you are, celebrating what you love and celebrating your life. Yeah. So how did kind of the next steps unfold with deciding to write your first book and then get your coaching certification, all of those things? Well, I always knew that I wanted to write. Like from the time I was a little girl, I always saw myself as being an author. In fact, I did a little book report one year, must've been like eight years old. And I, you know, wrote this book and I had a little section in the back and I wrote my, you know, about the author, what I imagined my life would be. I think I said, I was like, going to live on a farm in Virginia with some horses, which is so funny because I live in the East Village of Manhattan. That is hilarious. Yeah. And I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, you know, so like who was taking me to this farm and buying me these horses? I don't know. But anyway, I knew that I wanted to write. So the blog for me was really a platform to build a readership and an audience for my books. Never planned on being a life coach. Didn't know what life coaches were. Had no clue. Had no friends in the industry at that point. You know, I was this corporate girl trying to figure her stuff out. I was very artistic and creative, but never in like ever thought about coaching. But I started connecting with other entrepreneurs, other female entrepreneurs through Facebook groups at the time. So again, 2008, 2009, going into 2010. And I started learning about all these different career paths. And I really kind of, I remember like one day just racking my brain thinking like, okay, I love giving advice to women. I love sharing what I'm going through. I want to write this book. I need some kind of credential here. Like, I don't want to just be this girl who just gives out advice online. I want to actually learn about humans and the human psyche and how we react to things and how we can actually change our lives and the power of the mind. So I went to coaching school at night. I still had my job at MTV. I actually convinced them to pay for the tuition. They had a program at the time where if you could prove that you were going to use the skills, you know, in any kind of like continuing education course, and which I did, I was managing people at the time, convinced them to pay for it. And that is when I became a life coach. And for me, that's when things really took off because that's when I saw an actual business plan and a business model that I could use to, you know, really be like my pathway out of my nine to five. Yeah. So that's interesting because I remember you talking about it on Facebook, like while you were going through the program. And then I think when you were just finishing up, you were kind of looking for people to coach, like kind of pro bono to get some experience or whatever. And at the time, I didn't know about life coaches. Like it was kind of a new thing, wasn't it? I mean, I guess it wasn't on my radar, you know, to know what a life coach was at the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had no idea. It was so different than it is now. I feel like now everybody on Instagram calls himself a life coach. And I think it's great that the industry is growing, but I think a lot of people don't actually know what true coaching is. So I'm kind of happy that I got into it at the time when I did because I went to school. I got a certification. I 
I did it like the right way. And there's a big difference between coaching and consulting. You know, I think that like a lot of people get the two confused and I do a blend of both actually, because I do a lot of business consulting with my clients because I just can't help myself and I want to help women build their businesses because I know what it takes to build one and be successful. But yeah, I mean, back then coaching was so new and I was amazed when I learned about what it was and the power of coaching. And I think becoming a coach helped me become a better person because I was able to use those you know, tools on myself as well. I love that. So kind of switching gears a little bit. Well, I guess it kind of goes along with the coaching, but I just finished reading Girl on Fire a while back. And in the book, you know, you talk about the importance of choosing yourself. And ultimately, that's what you did when you wrote your first book and that book was rejected by, I think you wrote something like 19 different publishers at the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, and you, and you chose to self-publish, right? So no matter how positive your outlook is, I would imagine that kind of rejection has got to sting a little, right? <laughs> oh my God. It was crushing. Yeah. So I'm just like, how did you even get past that? And to say to yourself, you know what, I know that this book has value. I know it can help people. And I'm just going to find a way to get it out there. Well, around the time that I was looking to get a book deal, I was actually kind of following the self-publishing industry, which was really exploding and changing so much, you know, around that time period. So figure of 2009, 2010. And Seth Godin wrote an article. And anyone that's listening right now that's like thinking about self-publishing or even just doing anything on their own, I highly recommend reading this blog. It's called Reject the Tyranny of Being Picked and Pick Yourself. And he talked about Amazon specifically and everything that they were doing for authors and how easy they were making self-publishing and how this was going to be cutting edge. This was going to be really the next you know, frontier in terms of publishing and, you know, really not waiting for gatekeepers anymore. And so Amazon had created this on-demand print platform basically for authors. So, you know, things started to change and suddenly we could just publish our own books and it just became this incredible way to do things. So I realized at that point, why am I going to sit around and and wait for someone to choose me? I just, I couldn't stand the thought of, you know, being this person who was just kind of like waiting for something to happen. So I just went ahead and did it on my own. And it was honestly the best decision that I ever made. It wasn't easy, but it was the best decision that I made. That is amazing. And most of your books, I think, have been self-published, but you've had the experience of, you know, working with a traditional publisher. And so I'm curious kind of, now having the experience of both, which do you prefer? Like, which do you think is better in terms of the author? Oh, self-publishing for sure. And you know, I talk all about my experience in Girl on Fire, which was the book I self-published after I got my book deal. I finally got the book deal, the dream come true, so to speak, which really was not a dream come true for me. I'm grateful I had that experience, but I mean, the traditional publishing industry is just so outdated and it is just really so far behind. There's so much waiting involved and so much red tape and so many people involved that really just don't need to be involved. I don't think self-publishing is for everyone. You have to be willing to really treat your book as a business. I mean, you have to do that if you're traditionally published as well, but you've got to be a go-getter. You know, you've got to be willing to find a cover designer and someone to do the interior and find your own editor. But nowadays with things like Fiverr and just different networks of entrepreneurs, a Facebook group, you could literally find everybody in like, you know, the same day if you really needed to. There's just, there's so much out there for you really to do it on your own. So I for sure prefer self-publishing, just have more creative control. You keep the lion's share of the royalties. And ultimately you own that book. You own those words. You know, the idea of 
selling your work to someone else and having them be in control of it is to me, that's just, that's scary, you know, and and I did it. So take it from me, like someone that went back to self-publishing. It's just such a better option, I think, especially for entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's really interesting sort of hearing, you know, your perspective after the fact and that you decided to go back to self-publishing. So that definitely says something. Yeah. And it was one of those things like where, you know, I'm so glad that I did it. Like I said, I think it was so important for me to see both sides and to be able to make that decision, knowing what it was like on both sides of the fence. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of Girl on Fire, another thing that you talk about in the book is that we all really need to stop comparing ourselves to other people. And I think quitting the comparison game is especially tough for women because society really places so many expectations on us. And it's almost like we're sort of encouraged to just be competitive with each other. And, you know, I know I've struggled with this, especially because I started my business in my 40s and I had a lot of insecurity around not having been, I guess, more accomplished, you know, at that point in my life. So I'd love to hear you speak to that a little bit. Like, how can we sort of learn from and be inspired by other successful women like yourself without comparing ourselves and feeling less than. Oh yeah. I mean, look at the way our society is structured. It is set up for comparison. Social media is literally like a tool that you can use all day to watch other people's lives and watch other people's businesses. You know, it's such a blessing and a curse. I think that it's one of those things we really have to be mindful of in the way that we use it and realize that it is a tool and we get to control how it works for us, not the other way around. So, you know, when it comes to comparing and looking around at other people. And, you know, I would say there's a fine line between being inspired by someone and being totally like paralyzed by someone else, right? So you could sit there and look at somebody's website or listen to their podcast and have the attitude of like, well, she did it. I can do it too. But if you let yourself go too far down the rabbit hole, it turns into she already did this. Who am I to do this? You know, all the good ideas are taken. I think the way to kind of bust through that is just to First and foremost, like an actual tangible tool that you can use is just to limit the time that you spend online. You know, every, I think most people's phones have that app where it shows you how much time you're spending on each app. And, you know, I, I look at mine and it's like social media is just through the roof. And even though I use it for my job, I still am guilty of scrolling just like everybody else. So really start to become intentional about the time that you're spending online, the time that you're spending connecting with other people, looking around at other people you know, make sure it's truly market research and it's not, you know, what I call like junk food, you know, like just taking in like other people's stuff. It's just like, if it's not doing anything for you and making you healthier and making you better, it can become really dangerous. I think the other side of it is realizing that you have something unique to give and you're only going to figure out what that unique thing is. And you're, you know, essentially what your personal brand is. It's like a fancier way of saying it, right? But like, what is your style? What do you, how do you do things differently? How do you do things in a way that stands out? You're never going to figure that out in front of Instagram or in front of a computer. You know, you've, you're going to figure that out by living your life, by getting your hands dirty, by being creative, by putting yourself out there, trying, failing, making a mistake, doing something right. You know, so it's just more about like being in action as opposed to just staying in your head. 
Yeah, that's so good. And I definitely, you know, had sort of that come to Jesus moment about all the time I was spending, you know, consuming other people's content. And I last month, I ended up taking all of the apps off of my phone, and only, you know, having access to them through my computer, like certain times a day. And it was like a legit addiction. Like I kept looking at my phone, and I'm like, Oh, no, it's not there. It's not there. (laughs) But it definitely changed sort of I realized I am not living my life outside of this tiny little screen and there's something wrong with that. Totally. And I mean, right now with everything going on with the pandemic, it's even harder because we are forced to stay home more than we usually would be. So it's even more tempting to just sit there and scroll and look around. I think one of the ways to get out of it is just think about how you can help someone that day. If you find yourself stuck and you find yourself scrolling and getting overwhelmed and feeling down on yourself, just ask yourself, like, how can I help someone? Whether that's putting out a piece of content that helps somebody, whether that's jumping into a Facebook group and asking if someone needs advice, whether that's like reaching out to a friend and checking in on them, I find that that really helps. And that's why I love being a coach. You know, even though I do other things in my business, I will never stop coaching and I will never stop helping people because I think selfishly, it's such a great way to keep you in a good headspace too. Nothing feels as good as helping another person. You know what? I could not have asked for a better transition into my next question (laughs) because one of the things that you talk so much about is the importance of generosity and you know, I am 100% on board with that. One of the core beliefs that I really try to live by in terms of my business is to just show up and be helpful. But, you know, the other side of that is that, especially in my work as a copywriter and an email marketing strategist, a lot of my clients are truly afraid to talk about their offers. You know, they just give and give and give, and they're afraid to ask for the sale. So I know that you work with a lot of female entrepreneurs, and I'm curious about your take on that. Like, what's the balance between generosity and getting paid for what you do? It's such a great question. You know, I truly believe in helping others first and foremost, just like you said, and I love being generous and I love giving things away and adding value to people's lives. And I think it is so important to lead with that. However, you have to know your worth and you have to understand that you deserve to be paid. I always say empowering women means paying them too. So if you truly want to make a living off of what you're doing, you have to create a business plan and you have to have a strategy around that. Otherwise, it's just a hobby, which is fine. I think not everyone's meant to be an entrepreneur. I say that all the time. I don't think it is for everyone. It takes a lot of, you know, grit and hustle and patience. And, you know, there's just, there's so many things involved. But if you are truly trying to become a businesswoman, you've got to make sure you're doing more business than you are favors. You know, I'm going to say that again. Like you've got to make sure you're doing more business than you're doing favors. And it took me a long time to learn the difference between doing something to truly give to someone else versus doing something to be strategic, to set myself up for success in the future. For example, speaking for free when I was starting out or speaking for free because I know I'm going to be in front of a million people that I might not have access to. And then also charging for what you're worth. You know, so you've got to really think about like, how much of my day is spent giving away my content? People can't buy what you're selling if they don't know that you're selling it, right? Yes. So yes, yes. I'm guilty of it. I do the same thing. I forget sometimes. It's not even that I'm shy. I just truly forget because I get so carried away and excited about sharing things. And people will say to me, oh, you know, I didn't know that you had, you know, a group, a Facebook group, or I didn't know that you had a mastermind going on, or I didn't know you wrote this book. And I'm like, oh, that's my fault because I haven't been talking about it enough. Yeah. 
That's so true. And it's like, I think it's hard because we are just, well, we're nurturers, right? By, by nature. And at least I guess I I shouldn't speak for everybody, but that's sort of how I feel. And it's like, it's hard sometimes to realize like, oh yeah, well, this is a job. So (laughs) I need to be paid for it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, not be afraid to really ask for what you're worth. I see so many women just like undervaluing themselves and it just makes me crazy. And it's important to be honest about what you're worth. If you're just starting out, maybe it is a little strange for you to charge $500 an hour for coaching. You know, can you really deliver on that? Are you really worth that? Sometimes you're not at that point yet and that's okay. But when you are at that point, when you've been coaching for five or 10 or 15 years and you know your and you've got a ton of experience to back it up and results from clients, then you've got to know when to raise your prices, when to ask for the sale, when to really truly attach that number to what you're providing, that service that you're providing. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up because I think you know, that's so true. Like there's all this talk around, you know, charging what you're worth and getting paid what you're worth. But at the end of the day, like when you're just starting out, you kind of do have to do some stuff for free because it's all about visibility, you know, and getting your name out there and getting paid will come, but you definitely need to have that experience. Totally. You've got to be strategic about it. And I think it's one of those things that you just know in your gut if it feels right or if it doesn't. You know, I've had some people ask me to do things for free and I've, you know, seen it as like a kind of like an exchange because, you know, I was friendly with that person in the industry and maybe they were going to, you know, put me in front of an audience that I wouldn't have been in front of before. But then they've asked me a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And there comes a point where you're like, okay, I've done this for you now three times. Like it's not happening again. Like now I deserve to get paid for this. Here's what my rate is. You know, maybe you give them a discounted rate, but it's just when you have that weird feeling in your gut and you're like, this feels now kind of like I'm being taken advantage of, it's totally okay to, to ask for what you're worth. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about being multi-passionate and having several different business ventures. In Girl on Fire, you talk about this pressure that there is in the online business space to really niche down and become known for being the go-to person in one area. And, you know, I have to say, like, that's something that I talk about with my clients and the work that I do too. But you really took a different approach by following and monetizing some of your different interests. So how do you explain that? And how can other entrepreneurs sort of branch out and do these other things if they've already become known for something else? Okay. So if you are finding that you're multi-passionate and you want to do different things in your business, I think the first thing that you can do is write out a mission statement for your brand. You are your brand. If you're a creative and you're making things or you're teaching someone something, you're providing a service, you are your brand. So what is your mission statement? What is the thing that you do best? How do you want to help people? So take me for example, right? I write books. I coach. I've got a podcast. I've got um, a little boutique. But everything that I do, whether it's, you know, delivering content through a podcast or working with a client on business strategy or writing a book or selling someone a fabulous piece of vintage jewelry, it's all getting them to the same place. It's getting them to a place where they feel unapologetic, empowered, and they feel like more of themselves, right? So it's just about thinking about everything that you do and what ties that together. What is the, the thing? What is the glue that holds everything together? And more than likely, all of your passions somehow connect. So I think it's just, again, finding that intersection, right? Like what is the mission statement? That's like one of the things that you can really do to just get clear on it and start to see that 
connection. I think sometimes we make it more difficult on ourselves. We're like, oh, this doesn't really make sense. If I'm doing this, how can I do that? But it's just like everything, right? Like you were mentioning to me earlier, like you love 80s music, just like I do. That's part of your brand. That's part of who you are. And to some people, even though you're not selling 80s music, you're not in a band. At least I don't think you're in a band, Christine. <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> not yet. But you know, people know you for that. So it's the same thing when it comes down to what you sell. Like people know you, they get to know you. And I think I always say consistency bridges the gap from who is she to, oh, that's who she is, right? When you're consistent, when you show up, when you do those things, people get to know you for that. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to look at it too, because it really ties into kind of sharing more about who you are, you know, as part of your business. Like some people have a really hard time with that. And I think that if your audience doesn't get to see the other parts of you and who you are behind the scenes, when you do sort of naturally transition and pivot and want to do different things, it kind of cannot make sense because they've never seen that part of you before. That is such a great point. It's such a great point. They have to know you, they have to know what you love, and they have to know who you are. And then it all really does make sense to them. Yeah. So I'm just curious, though, because obviously, you know, you've built this huge audience from your books and from coaching. Do you think that it was easier for you to be successful with these other endeavors because you'd already built this following and your audience was sort of more open to the other things you were doing? I don't know if it was easier. I mean, listen, having an audience is great, right? So you've already got built-in people, but you earn those people. So those are people that I nurtured through the years and I lost a lot of them. I know that for a fact, I'm sure. I mean, like anytime that you introduce something new, you're going to lose people. But I will tell you, I've gotten so many responses from people who are like, oh my God, I love what you're doing with like the boutique, for example. So I have this like vintage boutique and I do some custom designs and apparel and things like that. I've had people who are like, you know, it's not really my style. It's like, you know, some of the stuff that you sell is so bold. I don't think I'd wear it, but I love watching you on this journey. It's so inspiring to see you build this business. So in some way, you're still helping people and you're still impacting people, even if they're not necessarily on board for everything that you do. But you also can't be afraid to lose people along the way. You know, I gain and lose followers constantly on Instagram, a couple hundred each week come and go. And the ones that go, I feel like maybe they don't really know me well enough. Maybe they just like found me on the Explorer page or they read a book and they liked reading like an inspirational quote, but then they got to know me and I wasn't their jam. And like, that's okay. So to answer your question, like, of course it's easier with a built-in audience, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to stay. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I'm just, I'm wondering too, this just came up for me. When you're thinking about the content that you're going to share, literally planning out your Instagram posts, are you kind of thinking about that behind the scenes, like sort of your different interests? You know, you hear people talking about content buckets, you know, you have your five things that you talk about or your three things that you talk about. Do you literally break it down like that? Or are you just more kind of go with the flow with it? Like whatever you feel? Oh, definitely go with the flow. I don't plan any of my content. I mean, I might have something that I'm like, oh, I really want to say this, but I'm going to wait till tomorrow because I've done three posts today and I don't want to overwhelm people. But for me, it's really what I'm in flow with. I'm a believer that like the energy that you put out on social media is felt on the other end. So I don't feel comfortable personally, like scheduling content out and overthinking it. Cause to me, that's just, I don't know. I've just never operated that way. Even the podcast, like sometimes I'll have ideas or I'll plan guests in advance, but I kind of just go off of my inspiration. And I believe that my audience feels that. So it's, 
definitely a flow. It's a seasonal thing for me too. You know, I, my coaching, my podcast, my retail, everything kind of flows in different seasons. Like I will do things simultaneously, but I think people know when I'm really going like all in on one thing and they feel that from me. Yeah. I, I really love that. I'm kind of in this place where I'm sort of learning to really kind of tune in more to what I'm driven to and what's exciting and fun. Because I think, you know, for so long, it's just been about sort of trying to follow this blueprint for success. But I mean, that's kind of what we're taught, right? It's like, there's this very masculine way of doing things where you must follow the steps and there's all of the shoulds and the supposed tos. And, you know, working in your feminine energy is very different. And it's kind of more about being in alignment and what are you drawn to? Like, what is the natural flow of your interests? And I can definitely say that just from this last year of sort of getting more into that and exploring it a little bit, that the things that are really fun and exciting to me and that I just sort of go after because of that for only that reason at all are the most successful. Like they happen so quickly, they come together effortlessly and it's a huge hit. Whereas the things that I sort of have tried to, you know, force or follow somebody else's example and say, okay, you must do this next. I've struggled, you know? Oh my God, totally. And listen, there has to be a yin and yang. The feminine and masculine have to be balanced. So the way that I view it is I lean on my feminine energy to guide me on what I should be focusing on. So when I'm thinking of a project or the next book idea or when I'm flowing into the next creative project, and then I rely on my masculine energy for the execution. You know, that's like how I set the goals and I work on things and I push myself and I, you know, I hustle and I get things done. So I think it's about like really marrying the two and realizing where each one is important. Yeah. I love that. But so what do you do if say, you know, you've had this idea and it's really flowing and you, you know, you set up the structure for yourself to just get in there and get it done. And then you're not so inspired by it anymore. Like, how do you know if it's just one of those things where you've just got to push through and do the work or it's really just not calling to you anymore? You know, I really just listen to my gut. And if something keeps coming up for me and it's one thing if it comes up on a day where I'm tired or, you know, I'm hormonal or I didn't sleep. I'm like, I hate this. I'm never doing this again. You know, I don't act on that. I've learned to be less reactive with things. And I now I kind of sleep on it. And, you know, if the next day it comes up and I'm like, this really isn't doing it for me. And then the next day and the next day, then I really evaluate if I want that to be part of my business model. And, you know, I think it's just a matter of like quieting the noise around you. You mentioned earlier, like, this is what we should be doing. There's so much of that going on just among peers and industry leaders and people on social media, but only you know what feels good for you. So when I let something go, it's usually if it's just a voice in me that just doesn't shut up. It just keeps telling me like red flag, like this doesn't feel good anymore. Like let's move on. And the same thing for a new idea. You know, I have lots of ideas. I'm sure you do too. We're creative, we're entrepreneurial. Like I want to do everything and I want to do it yesterday, but I can't act on every single one of those ideas because I'm one person. So if something comes up once, I'm like, interesting. Then it comes up again and it comes up again. And eventually it just gets to a point where it just can't be silenced and I have to take action on it. That is so good. Such a good point. All right. Are you ready for the Christy questions? I am ready. Let's do it. All right. So the first one on a little serious note here. In an Instagram post, you mentioned your recent divorce and you said that you weren't comfortable talking about it because it involves someone that you cared about. So I'm curious, you know, as a public person, as a personal brand, what other things come into consideration 
when you're sort of deciding what is okay to share online and what you're going to choose to keep private? Such a good question. You know, I think we're so used to sharing every bit of our lives and we're told that we should, right? Like be vulnerable, be transparent. And I believe that too. I'm one of those people that tries to be as vulnerable as possible. But I think you have to leave something for yourself. You've got to leave something for you. Like, you know, something has to be sacred. So when something involves another person, whether it's family or friends or relationships, that to me is the one thing that I do not share with other people. That's personal to me. You know, like family members, when it involves kids, for example, my cousin has like these adorable kids. Like I don't post pictures of them and I definitely don't tag her. You know, I think that we have to kind of protect people in our lives, especially when you have a large following relationships is just something I don't want to share. I don't want to talk about. I mean, even when I was married, like I never really posted my husband. Like I wanted to protect his privacy. He's a very private kind of guy. He doesn't want to be out there all the time, you know, sharing every aspect of his life. He's not on social media. So I think it just comes down to what are you comfortable with and how is it affecting the people around you? Yeah, that's a really good way to handle it. I think, I mean, I certainly don't have the following that you have, but I definitely made a decision early on to not really talk a whole lot about my husband or like I don't post a lot of stuff about my kids. And it's funny because other moms have sort of given me a little bit of flack about it. Like, you know, why don't you talk about your family? And they didn't sign up for it. You know what I mean? There are times that we do things together and I might ask them if it's okay if I post this or, you know, mention them or whatever. But for the most part, I feel like they didn't sign up for having a mom who has an online business and is posting everything about her life. So it's something that I feel like it's better to keep private. So I totally get that, you know, that when it involves other people, it's kind of a different game. Yeah. And I love that you protect your kids like that because no judgment towards any of the moms out there. But I think it is hard, you know, when you do put your children online and then they have to go to school or maybe they're going to look back on it in five years and see it and it might embarrass them. Oh yeah, for sure. And my kids, you know, they're older now, but especially when they were teenagers, it's like they're embarrassed about everything (laughs) and everything is, you know, a storm. So it's not even worth it to go there. They need to figure things out on their own and you know, get to a place that they're comfortable with whatever they share online. And it's certainly not up to me to push the envelope. So I totally get that. So, okay, let's switch gears a little bit. This is just kind of a fun question. So I don't know if you know this, but we have a mutual love of 80s music. And I've kind of become known for my 80s British pop band t-shirts and kind of throwing in some John Hughes movie references in my emails from time to time. (laughs) So of course, I want to know what your top three 80s artists are. Oh my God, I love this question. Okay, George Michael, David Bowie, and Prince. I call them my my three dead boyfriends. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. It's so sad that they're not here anymore, but they're like for sure, like hands down my favorites. Oh, I love that. I was more of a like Duran Duran and squeeze girl. Like I have all those and like the clash. I thought I was badass, you know, cause I liked some punk bands too. <laughs> oh, I love punk. I love punk and I love Blondie and I love like all like, you know, the female vocalists. Like there's just, it's so hard to pick. It really is. It really is. Okay. Last question. If you are not an author, a master life coach and all the other things you've got going on, who would Kara all will be in an alternate universe? Oh my God. I would be a singer for sure. <laughs> the worst singing voice. It's so bad. I like torture all my friends with it, like at karaoke. But I I have this like fantasy that one day I just open my mouth and like the most beautiful voice comes out of it. Like when I'm singing in my house. 
<laughs> it's, so, it's so terrible, but I swear I'd be like, I'd be a singer. I'd be in a band for sure. I would probably, yeah. I mean, if I can go back in time, if we're really going to get like total fantasy land on this, I would totally be like an 80s girl band singer. Oh or my 90. God. Yes. I remember I was, you know, grew up watching MTV like way younger than I should have been like seeing that stuff. But, oh, same. um, you know, I was unsupervised. So yeah, <laughs> it worked out well. But I was like, you know, always trying to recreate the videos. And I thought I was going to be a famous singer too. So I totally I'm with you on that fantasy. I made a demo once I must have been like 11. What? And I recorded myself. I had a pink boom box and I recorded myself singing. I think we're alone now by Tiffany. And I don't know like what I did. I think I asked my mom if I could like mail it to like Sony records. And I think she let me like, you know, they probably threw it right in the garbage, but I actually made this demo when I was little. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, that yeah. is so funny because I, I don't even know. I don't know if I made any recordings, but I remember thinking that like, oh, it's so simple. You just make a tape of yourself singing and you send it to all the record companies and they're just going to come knocking on your door. <laughs> Meanwhile, I actually worked for I worked for Clive Davis. I don't know if you know this, but I did a whole stint in the music business because that's like what my first passion was. I wanted to work in the music industry. I would get the tapes. I worked at J Records and I would get like the there were CDs at the time. It was like, you know, early 2000s. And if they didn't have representation, we had to throw them away. So if it wasn't coming from like an A&R, like a manager, like we literally threw them in the garbage. And I was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm crushing so many dreams right now and I'm not even trying. Oh my gosh. That's wild. Actually, so this is funny. I went to my first degree, my associate's degree is in business management with a concentration in the music business. I actually started college as a voice major. And I was literally like too afraid to get up and sing in front of people. So I switched to the back end side of things. And yeah, my associate's degree is in the music business. And so I've never, I never had a job there. Like I never lived in the city. So it's funny because when I met you and you were working at MTV, I was like, oh man, she has the dream job. <laughs> Actually, you know, my dream job was my first zine when I was like 17 years old. Do you remember zines? Is that like the, you'd put them together, like these magazines kind of things? Yeah, like a fanzine, like a Xerox thing. Yeah, I call it a job. I'm using like total like air quotes here at home. But like it was my first, without even knowing what entrepreneurship was, I guess I kind of was doing it. Me and my friend started this fanzine in like 1996 called Honey Spider, which was an old Smashing Pumpkins like B-side that we named it after. We thought we were so like unique. And we would call record labels and I was in high school and I would call record labels and ask them like for interviews. And we wound up getting passes to like Warp Tour and all these concerts. I interviewed Blink-182 and Shut up. You know, like all these song bands and punk bands. Yeah. I would say that was like my first best job ever. I, I did not get paid for it. I think we sold the zines for like a dollar each. <laughs> that is crazy. So okay. Fun. If I could not love you anymore, like I didn't realize that we had all of these things in common. That's just hilarious. I know we like parallel life. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, Kara, thank you so much for being on the show. You know, you really do so much to support and encourage and inspire other women. And as I said earlier, you know, it's just, it's been really awesome to just see you build this empire over the years. And honestly, your success is well-deserved. So just thank you for being here. Where can people find you? Thank you so much for having me. And I hope this was inspiring to anyone listening who's thinking about doing something. Like life is so short, just go for it. If you guys want to connect with me, I'm on Instagram at The Champagne Diet. 
My website's thechampagnediet.com, and I have a podcast called Style Your Mind, which is on iTunes and Spotify and all those good places. I love, love, love your podcast. I just finished listening to the Star Monroe interview. Well, it might not be the latest once this podcast comes out, but so, so good. So if you guys haven't listened to Kara's podcast, check it out. It's so good. Thank you for tuning in to Captivate and Convert. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to support the podcast by leaving a five-star review and subscribing and sharing it with your biz besties. Your ratings and reviews help us reach more listeners who want to grow and scale their businesses fast. And don't forget to post a screenshot of this podcast in your IG stories and tag me at Christy Sigelski or at Captivate and Convert so I can repost you. Until next time, cheers. Today's episode is brought to you by the Six Figure Sales Funnel mini course. Now I want you to imagine with me for a second if you had actual dream clients joining your email list in droves. I'm talking about the ones who are ready and willing to pay to work with you. What if you knew exactly what to write in every email so your subscribers obsessed over you and snapped up your offers the minute they went live? Well, the good news is that attracting the right clients and creating an email marketing funnel that connects, captivates, and converts isn't as complicated as you might think. In fact, it's the fastest and easiest way to fill your calendar with clients. Now, if you want to make six figures or more, You need a repeatable system to find your ideal clients and bring them through the steps to become paying customers. The Six Figure Sales Funnel mini course is a proven framework that teaches you how to attract the people you actually want to work with and create an email marketing funnel that sells your signature offer on autopilot. For just $37, you get instant access to five modules with video lessons, cheat sheets, and workbooks, and three juicy bonuses that will teach you how to grow your list fast and snag a slew of dreamy clients willing to pull out their wallets the minute your offer goes live, even if you're new to email marketing. So check out the link in the show notes for all the details.